Section 16 of The Triumph of the Egg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Triumph of the Egg by Sherwood Anderson. Section 16. Out of Nowhere into Nothing. Part 6. At the end of the short street on which the Westcotts lived in Willow Springs, there was a cornfield. When Rosalind was a child, it was a meadow, and beyond was an orchard. On summer afternoons the child often went there to sit alone on the banks of a tiny stream that wandered away eastward toward Willow Creek, draining the farmer's fields on the way. The creek had made a slight depression in the level contour of the land, and she sat with her back against an old apple tree and with her bare feet almost touching the water. Her mother did not permit her to run barefooted through the streets, but when she got into the orchard she took her shoes off. It gave her a delightful, naked feeling. Overhead and through the branches, the child could see the great sky. Masses of white clouds broke into fragments, and then the fragments came together again. The sun ran in behind one of the cloud masses, and gray shadows slid silently over the face of distant fields. The world of her child life, the Westcott household, Melville Stoner sitting in his house, the cries of other children who lived in her street, all the life she knew went far away. To be there in that silent place was like lying awake in bed at night, only in some way sweeter and better. There were no dull household sounds, and the air she breathed was sweeter, cleaner. The child played a little game. All the apple trees in the orchard were old and gnarled, and she had given all the trees names. There was one fancy that frightened her a little, but was delicious, too. She fancied that at night, when she had gone to bed and was asleep, and when all the town of Willow Springs had gone to sleep, the trees came out of the ground and walked about. The grasses beneath the trees, the bushes, that grew beside the fence, all came out of the ground and ran madly here and there. They danced wildly. The old trees, like stately old men, put their heads together and talked. As they talked, their bodies swayed slightly, back and forth, back and forth. The bushes and flowering weeds ran in great circles among the little grasses. The grasses hopped straight up and down. Sometimes when she sat with her back against the tree on warm, bright afternoons, the child Rosalind had played the game of dancing life until she grew afraid and had to give it up. Nearby in the fields men were cultivating corn. The breasts of the horses and their wide, strong shoulders pushed the young corn aside and made a low, rustling sound. Now and then a man's voice was raised in a shout, Hey there, you Joe, get in there, Frank. The widow of the hens owned a little woolly dog that occasionally broke into a spasm of barking, apparently without cause, senseless, eager barking. Rosalind shut all the sounds out. She closed her eyes and struggled, trying to get into the place beyond human sounds. After a time, her desire was accomplished. There was a low, sweet sound like the murmuring of voices far away. Now the thing was happening. With a kind of tearing sound, the trees came up to stand on top of the ground. They moved with stately tread toward each other. 
Now the mad bushes and the flowering weeds came running, dancing madly. Now the joyful grasses hopped. Rosalind could not stay long in her world of fancy. It was too mad, too joyful. She opened her eyes and jumped to her feet. Everything was all right. The trees stood solidly rooted in the ground. The weeds and bushes had gone back to their places by the fence. The grasses lay asleep on the ground. She felt that her father and mother, her brother, everyone she knew would not approve of her being there among them. The world of dancing life was a lovely but a wicked world, she knew. Sometimes she was a little mad herself and then she was whipped or scolded. The mad world of her fancy had to be put away. It frightened her a little. Once after the thing appeared she cried, went down to the fence crying. A man who was cultivating corn came along and stopped his horses. What's the matter? he asked sharply. She couldn't tell him so she told a lie. A bee stung me, she said. The man laughed. It'll get well. Better put on your shoes, he advised. The time of the marching trees and the dancing grasses was in Rosalind's childhood. Later, when she had graduated from the Willow Springs High School and had the three years of waiting about the Westcott house before she went to the city, she had other experiences in the orchard. Then she had been reading novels and had talked with other young women. She knew many things that, after all, she did not know. In the attic of her mother's house there was a cradle in which she and her brother had slept when they were babies. One day she went up there and found it. Bedding for the cradle was packed away in a trunk and she took it out. She arranged the cradle for the reception of a child. Then, after she did it, she was ashamed. Her mother might come up the attic stairs and see it. She put the bedding quickly back into the trunk and went downstairs, her cheeks burning with shame. What a confusion. One day she went to the house of a schoolgirl friend who was about to be married. Several other girls came and they were all taken into a bedroom where the bride's trousseau was laid out on a bed. What soft, lovely things! All the girls went forward and stood over them, Rosalind among them. Some of the girls were shy, others bold. There was one, a thin girl who had no breasts. Her body was flat like a door and she had a thin, sharp voice and a thin, sharp face. She began to cry out strangely. How sweet, how sweet, how sweet, she cried over and over. The voice was not like a human voice. It was like something being hurt, an animal in the forest far away somewhere by itself being hurt. Then the girl dropped to her knees beside the bed and began to weep bitterly. She declared she could not bear the thought of her schoolgirl friend being married. Don't do it. Oh, Mary, don't do it, she pleaded. The other girls laughed, but Rosalind couldn't stand it. She hurried out of the house. That was one thing that had happened to Rosalind, and there were other things. Once she saw a young man on the street. He clerked in a store, and Rosalind did not know him. However, her fancy played with the thought that she had married him. Her own thoughts made her ashamed. Everything shamed her. When she went into the orchard on summer afternoons, she sat with her back against the apple tree and took off her shoes and stockings just as she had when she was a child. But the world of her childhood fancy was gone. Nothing 
could bring it back. Rosalind's body was soft, but all her flesh was firm and strong. She moved away from the tree and lay on the ground. She pressed her body down into the grass, into the firm, hard ground. It seemed to her that her mind, her fancy, all the life within her, except just her physical life, went away. The earth pressed upwards against her body. Her body was pressed against the earth. There was darkness. She was imprisoned. She pressed against the walls of her prison. Everything was dark, and there was in all the earth silence. Her fingers clutched a handful of the grasses played in the grasses. Then she grew very still, but did not sleep. There was something that had nothing to do with the ground beneath her, or the trees, or the clouds in the sky, that seemed to want to come to her, come into her, a kind of white wonder of life. The thing couldn't happen. She opened her eyes, and there was the sky overhead and the trees standing silently about. She went again to sit with her back against one of the trees. She thought with dread of the evening coming on and the necessity of going out of the orchard and to the Westcott house. She was weary. It was the weariness that made her appear to others a rather dull, stupid young woman. Where was the wonder of life? It was not within herself, not in the ground. It must be in the sky overhead. Presently it would be night and the stars would come out. Perhaps the wonder did not really exist in life. It had something to do with God. She wanted to ascend upwards, to go at once up into God's house, to be there among the light, strong men and women who had died and left dullness and heaviness behind them on the earth. Thinking of them took some of her weariness away, and sometimes she went out of the orchard in the late afternoon, walking almost lightly. Something like grace seemed to have come into her tall, strong body. Rosalind had gone away from the Westcott house and from Willow Springs, Iowa, feeling that life was essentially ugly. In a way, she hated life and people. In Chicago, sometimes it was unbelievable how ugly the world had become. She tried to shake off the feeling, but it clung to her. She walked through the crowded streets and the buildings were ugly. A sea of faces floated up to her. They were the faces of dead people. The dull death that was in them was in her also. They too could not break through the walls of themselves to the white wonder of life. After all, perhaps there was no such thing as the white wonder of life. It might just be a thing of the mind. There was something essentially dirty about life. The dirt was on her and in her. Once, as she walked at evening over the Rush Street Bridge to her room on the north side, she looked up suddenly and saw the Chrysoprase River running inland from the lake. Near at hand stood a soap factory. The men of the city had turned the river about, made it flow inland from the lake. Someone had erected a great soap factory there near the river's entrance to the city, to the land of men. Rosalind stopped and stood looking along the river toward the lake. Men and women, wagons, automobiles rushed past her. They were dirty, 
She was dirty. The water of an entire sea and millions of cakes of soap will not wash me clean, she thought. The dirtiness of life seemed a part of her very being and an almost overwhelming desire to climb upon the railing of the bridge and leap down into the chrysoprase river swept over her. Her body trembled violently and putting down her head and staring at the flooring of the bridge, she hurried away. And now Rosalind, a grown woman, was in the Westcott house at the supper table with her father and mother. None of the three people ate. They fussed about with the food Ma Westcott had prepared. Rosalind looked at her mother and thought of what Melville Stoner had said. If I wanted to write, I'd do something. I'd tell what everyone thought. It would startle people, frighten them a little, eh? I would tell what you have been thinking this afternoon while you walked here on this railroad track with me. I would tell what your mother has been thinking at the same time and what she would like to say to you. What had Rosalind's mother been thinking all through the three days since her daughter had so unexpectedly come home from Chicago? What did mothers think in regard to the lives led by their daughters? Had mothers something of importance to say to daughters? And if they did, when did the time come when they were ready to say it? She looked at her mother sharply. The older woman's face was heavy and sagging. She had gray eyes like Rosalind's, but they were dull, like the eyes of a fish lying on a slab of ice in the window of a city meat market. The daughter was a little frightened by what she saw in her mother's face, and something caught in her throat. There was an embarrassing moment. A strange sort of tenseness came into the air of the room, and all three people suddenly got up from the table. Rosalind went to help her mother with the dishes, and her father sat in a chair by a window and read a paper. The daughter avoided looking again into her mother's face. I must gather myself together if I am to do what I want to do, she thought. It was strange. In fancy, she saw the lean, bird-like face of Melville Stoner and the eager, tired face of Walter Sayers floating above the head of her mother who leaned over the kitchen sink washing the dishes. Both of the men's faces sneered at her. You think you can, but you can't. You are a young fool, the men's lips seemed to be saying. Rosalind's father wondered how long his daughter's visit was to last. After the evening meal, he wanted to clear out of the house, go uptown, and he had a guilty feeling that in doing so he was being discourteous to his daughter. While the two women washed the dishes, he put on his hat and, going into the backyard, began chopping wood. Rosalind went to sit on the front porch. The dishes were all washed and dried, but for a half hour her mother would putter about in the kitchen. She always did that. She would arrange and rearrange, pick up dishes and put them down again. She clung to the kitchen. It was as though she dreaded the hours that must pass before she could go upstairs and to bed and to sleep, to fall into the oblivion of sleep. When Henry Westcott came around the corner of the house and confronted his daughter, he was a little startled. He did not know what was the matter, but he felt uncomfortable. For a moment he stopped and looked at her. Life radiated from her figure. A fire burned in her eyes, in her gray, intense eyes. Her hair was yellow like corn silk. She was, at the moment, a complete, a lovely daughter 
of the cornlands, a being to be loved passionately, completely by some son of the cornlands, had there been in the land a son as alive as this daughter it had thrown aside. The father had hoped to escape from the house unnoticed. I'm going uptown a little while, he said, hesitatingly. Still he lingered a moment. Some old sleeping thing awoke in him, was awakened in him by the startling beauty of his daughter. A little fire flared up among the charred rafters of the old house that was his body. You look pretty, girlie, he said sheepishly, and then turned his back to her and went along the path to the gate and the street. Rosalind followed her father to the gate and stood looking as he went slowly along the short street and around a corner. The mood induced in her by her talk with Melville Stoner had returned. Was it possible that her father also felt as Melville Stoner sometimes did? Did loneliness drive him to the door of insanity, and did he also run through the night seeking some lost, some hidden and half-forgotten loveliness? When her father had disappeared around the corner, she went through the gate and into the street. I'll go sit by the tree in the orchard until mother has finished puttering about the kitchen, she thought. Henry Westcott went along the streets until he came to the square about the courthouse and then went into Emmanuel Wilson's hardware store. Two or three other men presently joined him there. Every evening he sat among these men of his town, saying nothing. It was an escape from his own house and his wife. The other men came for the same reason. A faint, perverted kind of male fellowship was achieved. One of the men of the party, a little old man who followed the house painter's trade, was unmarried and lived with his mother. He was himself nearing the age of sixty, but his mother was still alive. It was a thing to be wondered about. When in the evening the house painter was a trifle late at the rendezvous, a mild flurry of speculation arose, floated in the air for a moment, and then settled like dust in an empty house. Did the old house painter do the housework in his own house? Did he wash the dishes, cook the food, sweep, and make the beds, or did his feeble old mother do those things? Emmanuel Wilson told a story he had often told before. In a town in Ohio where he had lived as a young man, he had a, once heard a tale. There was an old man like the house painter whose mother was also still alive and lived with him. They were very poor, and in the winter had not enough bedclothes to keep them both warm. They crawled into a bed together. It was an innocent enough matter, just like a mother taking her child into a bed. Henry Westcott sat in the store listening to the tale Emmanuel Wilson told for the twentieth time and thought about his daughter. Her beauty made him feel a little proud, a little above the men who were his companions. He had never before thought of his daughter as a beautiful woman. Why had he never before noticed her beauty? Why had she come from Chicago, there by the lake, to Willow Springs in the hot month of August? Had she come home from Chicago because she really wanted to see her father and mother? For a moment he was ashamed of his own heavy body, of his shabby clothes and his unshaven face, and then the tiny flame that had flared up within him burned itself out. The house painter came in, and the faint flavor of male companionship to which he clung so tenaciously was reestablished. 
In the orchard, Rosalind sat with her back against the tree in the same spot where her fancy had created the dancing life of her childhood, and where as a young woman graduate of the Willow Springs High School she had come to try to break through the wall that separated her from life. The sun had disappeared and the gray shadows of night were creeping over the grass, lengthening the shadows cast by the trees. The orchard had long been neglected and many of the trees were dead and without foliage. The shadows of the dead branches were like long, lean arms that reached out, felt their way forward over the gray grass. Long, lean fingers reached and clutched. There was no wind and the night would be dark and without a moon, a hot, dark, starlit night of the plains. In a moment more it would be black night. Already the creeping shadows on the grass were barely discernible. Rosalind felt death all about her, in the orchard, in the town. Something Walter Sayers had once said to her came sharply back into her mind. When you are in the country alone at night, some time, try giving yourself to the night, to the darkness, to the shadows cast by trees. The experience, if you really give yourself to it, will tell you a startling story. You will find that, although... The white men have owned the land for several generations now, and although they have built towns everywhere, dug coal out of the ground, covered the land with railroads, towns, and cities, they do not own an inch of the land in the whole continent. It still belongs to a race who in their physical life are now dead. The red men, although they are practically all gone, still own the American continent. Their fancy has peopled it with ghosts, with gods and devils. It is because in their time they loved the land. The proof of what I say is to be seen everywhere. We have given our towns no beautiful names of our own because we have not built the towns beautifully. When an American town has a beautiful name it was stolen from another race, from a race that still owns the land in which we live. We are all strangers here. When you are alone at night in the country, anywhere in America, try giving yourself to the night. You will find that death only resides in the conquering whites, and that life remains in the red men who are gone. The spirits of the two men, Walter Sayers and Melville Stoner, dominated the mind of Rosalind. She felt that. It was as though they were beside her, sitting beside her on the grass in the orchard. She was quite certain that Melville Stoner had come back to his house and was now sitting within sound of her voice. Did she raise her voice to call? What did they want of her? Had she suddenly begun to love two men, both older than herself? The shadows of the branches of trees made a carpet on the floor of the orchard, a soft carpet spun of some delicate material on which the footsteps of men could make no sound. The two men were coming toward her, advancing over the carpet. Melville Stoner was near at hand, and Walter Sayers was coming from far away out of the distance. The spirit of him was creeping toward her. The two men were in accord. They came bearing some male knowledge of life, something they wanted to give her. She arose and stood by the tree, trembling. Into what a state she had got herself! How long would it endure? Into what knowledge of life and death was she being led? She had come home on a simple mission. 
She loved Walter Sayers, wanted to offer herself to him, but before doing so, had felt the call to come home to her mother. She had thought she would be bold and would tell her mother the story of her love. She would tell her and then take what the older woman offered. If her mother understood and sympathized, well, that would be a beautiful thing to have happen. If her mother did not understand, at any rate, she would have paid some old debt, would have been true to some old, unexpressed obligation. The two men, what did they want of her? What had Melville Stoner to do with the matter? She put the figure of him out of her mind. In the figure of the other man, Walter Sayers, there was something less aggressive, less assertive. She clung to that. She put her arm about the trunk of the old apple tree and laid her cheek against its rough bark. Within herself she was so intense, so excited, that she wanted to rub her cheeks against the bark of the tree until the blood came, until physical pain came to counteract the tenseness within that had become pain. Since the meadow between the orchard and the street end had been planted to corn, she would have to reach the street by going along a lane, crawling under a wire fence, and crossing the yard of the widowed chicken-raiser. A profound silence reigned over the orchard, and when she had crawled under the fence and reached the widow's backyard, she had to feel her way through a narrow opening between a chicken-house and a barn, by running her fingers forward over the rough boards. Her mother sat on the porch waiting, and on the narrow porch before his house next door sat Melville Stoner. She saw him as she hurried past and shivered slightly. What a dark vulture-looking thing he is. He lives off the dead, off dead glimpses of beauty, off dead old sounds heard at night, she thought. When she got to the Westcott house, she threw herself down on the porch and lay on her back with her arms stretched above her head. Her mother sat on a rocking chair beside her. There was a street lamp at the corner at the end of the street, and a little light came through the branches of trees and lighted her mother's face. How white and still and death-like it was. When she had looked, Rosalind closed her eyes. I mustn't. I shall lose courage, she thought. There was no hurry about delivering the message she had come to deliver. It would be two hours before her father came home. The silence of the village street was broken by a hubbub that arose in the house across the street. Two boys, playing some game, ran from room to room through the house, slamming doors, shouting. A baby began to cry, and then a woman's voice protested, Quit it! Quit it! the voice called. Don't you see you have wakened the baby? Now I shall have a time getting him to sleep again. Rosalind's fingers closed and her hands remained clenched. I came home to tell you something. I have fallen in love with a man and can't marry him. He is a good many years older than myself and is already married. He has two children. I love him and I think he loves me. I know he does. I want him to have me, too. I wanted to come home and tell you before it happened, she said, speaking in a low, clear voice. She wondered if Melville Stoner could hear her declaration. Nothing happened. The chair in which Rosalind's mother sat had been rocking slowly, back and forth, and making a slight creaking sound. 
The sound continued. In the house across the street, the baby stopped crying. The words Rosalind had come from Chicago to say to her mother were said, and she felt relieved and almost happy. The silence between the two women went on and on. Rosalind's mind wandered away. Presently there would be some sort of reaction from her mother. She would be condemned. Perhaps her mother would say nothing until her father came home and would then tell him. She would be condemned as a wicked woman, ordered to leave the house. It did not matter. Rosalind waited. Like Walter Sayers sitting in his garden, her mind seemed to float away out of her body. It ran away from her mother to the man she loved. One evening, on just such another quiet summer evening as this one, she had gone into the country with Walter Sayers. Before that, he had talked to her, at her, on many other evenings and during long hours in the office. He had found in her someone to whom he could talk, to whom he wanted to talk. What doors of life he had opened for her. The talk had gone on and on. In her presence, the man was relieved. He relaxed out of the tenseness that had become the habit of his body. He had told her of how he had wanted to be a singer and had given up the notion. It isn't my wife's fault nor the children's fault, he had said. They could have lived without me. The trouble is, I could not have lived without them. I am a defeated man, was intended from the first to be a defeated man, and I needed something to cling to, something with which to justify my defeat. I realize that now. I am a dependent. I shall never try to sing now, because I am one who has at least one merit. I know defeat. I can accept defeat. That is what Walter Sayers had said, and then on the summer evening in the country as she sat beside him in his car, he had suddenly begun to sing. He had opened a farm gate and had driven the car silently along a grass-covered lane and into a meadow. The lights had been put out and the car crept along. When it stopped, some cattle came and stood nearby. Then he began to sing, softly at first and with increasing boldness, as he repeated the song over and over. Rosalind was so happy she had wanted to cry out. It is because of myself he can sing now, she had thought proudly. How intensely at the moment she loved the man, and yet perhaps the thing she felt was not love after all. There was pride in it. It was for her a moment of triumph. He had crept up to her, out of a dark place, out of the dark cave of defeat. It had been her hand reached down that had given him courage. She lay on her back at her mother's feet on the porch of the Westcott house, trying to think, striving to get her own impulses clear in her mind. She had just told her mother that she wanted to give herself to the man, Walter Sayers. Having made the statement, she already wondered if it could be quite true. She was a woman, and her mother was a woman. What would her mother have to say to her? What did mothers say to daughters? The male element in life, what did it want? Her own desires and impulses were not clearly realized within herself. Perhaps what she wanted in life could be got in some sort of communion with another woman, with her mother. 
What a strange and beautiful thing it would be if mothers could suddenly begin to sing to their daughters, if out of the darkness and silence of old women's song could come. Men confused Rosalind. They had always confused her. On that very evening, her father, for the first time in years, had really looked at her. He had stopped before her as she sat on the porch, and there had been something in his eyes. A fire had burned in his old eyes, as it had sometimes burned in the eyes of Walter. Was the fire intended to consume her quite? Was it the fate of women to be consumed by men and of men to be consumed by women. In the orchard, an hour before, she had distinctly felt the two men, Melville Stoner and Walter Sayers, coming toward her, walking silently on the soft carpet made of the dark shadows of trees. They were again coming toward her. In their thoughts they approached nearer and nearer to her, to the inner truth of her. The street and the town of Willow Springs were covered with a mantle of silence. Was it the silence of death? Had her mother died? Did her mother sit there now a dead thing in the chair beside her? The soft creaking of the rocking chair went on and on. Of the two men whose spirits seemed hovering about, one, Melville Stoner, was bold and cunning. He was too close to her, knew too much of her. He was unafraid. The spirit of Walter Sayers was merciful. He was gentle, a man of understanding. She grew afraid of Melville Stoner. He was too close to her, knew too much of the dark, stupid side of her life. She turned on her side and stared into the darkness toward the Stoner house, remembering her girlhood. The man was too physically close. The faint light from the distant street lamp that had lighted her mother's face crept between branches of trees and over the tops of bushes, and she could see dimly the figure of Melville Stoner sitting before his house. She wished it were possible with a thought to destroy him, wipe him out, cause him to cease to exist. He was waiting. When her mother had gone to bed and when she had gone upstairs to her own room to lie awake, he would invade her privacy. Her father would come home walking with dragging footsteps along the sidewalk. He would come into the Westcott house and through to the back door. He would pump the pail of water at the pump and bring it into the house to put it on the box by the kitchen sink. Then he would wind the clock. He would... Rosalind stirred uneasily. Life in the figure of Melville Stoner had her. It gripped her tightly. She could not escape. He would come into her bedroom and invade her secret thoughts. There was no escape for her. She imagined his mocking laughter ringing through the silent house, the sound rising above the dreadful commonplace sounds of everyday life there. She did not want that to happen. The sudden death of Melville Stoner would bring sweet silence. She wished it possible with a thought to destroy him, to destroy all men. She wanted her mother to draw close to her. That would save her from the men. Surely before the evening had passed, her mother would have something to say, something living and true. 
Rosalind forced the figure of Melville Stoner out of her mind. It was as though she had got out of her bed in the room upstairs and had taken the man by the arm and led him to the door. She had put him out of the room and had closed the door. Her mind played her a trick. Melville Stoner had no sooner gone out of her mind than Walter Sayers came in. In imagination she was with Walter in the car on the summer evening in pasture, and he was singing. The cattle with their soft, broad noses and the sweet, grass-flavored breaths were crowding in close. There was sweetness in Rosalind's thoughts now. She rested and waited, waited for her mother to speak. In her presence, Walter Sayers had broken his long silence, and soon the old silence between mother and daughter would also be broken. The singer who would not sing had begun to sing because of her presence. Song was the true note of life. It was the triumph of life over death. What sweet solace had come to her that time when Walter Sayers sang. How life had coursed through her body. How alive she had suddenly become. It was at that moment she had decided definitely, finally, that she wanted to come closer to the man, that she wanted with him the ultimate physical closeness, to find in physical expression through him what in his song he was finding through her. It was in expressing physically her love of the man she would find the white wonder of life, the wonder of which, as a clumsy and crude girl, she had dreamed as she lay on the grass in the orchard. Through the body of the singer she would approach, touch the white wonder of life. I shall willingly sacrifice everything else on the chance that may happen, she thought. How peaceful and quiet the summer night had become. How clearly now she understood life. The song Walter Sayers had sung in the field, in the presence of the cattle, was in a tongue she had not understood, but now she understood everything, even the meaning of the strange foreign words. The song was about life and death. What else was there to sing about? The sudden knowledge of the content of the song had not come out of her own mind. The spirit of Walter was coming toward her. It had pushed the mocking spirit of Melville Stoner aside. What things had not the mind of Walter Sayers already done to her mind, to the awakening woman within her? Now it was telling her the story of the song. The words of the song itself seemed to float down the silent street of the Iowa town. They described the sun going down in the smoke clouds of a city and the gulls coming from a lake to float over the city. Now the gulls floated over a river. The river was the color of chrysoprase. She, Rosalind Westcott, stood on a bridge in the heart of the city, and she had become entirely convinced of the filth and ugliness of life. She was about to throw herself into the river, to destroy herself in an effort to make herself clean. It did not matter. Strange, sharp cries came from the birds, the cries of the birds were like the voice of Melville Stoner. They whirled and turned in the air overhead. In a moment more she would throw herself into the river, and then the birds would fall straight down in a long, graceful line. The body of her would be gone, swept away by the stream, carried away to decay. 
but what was really alive in herself would arise with the birds in the long graceful upward line of the flight of the birds rosalind lay tense and still on the porch at her mother's feet in the air above the hot sleeping town buried deep in the ground beneath all towns and cities life went on singing it persistently sang the song of life was in the humming of bees in the calling of tree toads in the throats of negroes rolling cotton bales on a boat in a river the song was a command it told over and over the story of life and of death life forever defeated by death death forever defeated by life the long silence of rosalind's mother was broken and rosalind tried to tear herself away from the spirit of the song that had begun to sing itself within her the sun sank down into the western sky over a city life defeated by death death defeated by life the factory chimneys had become pencils of light life defeated by death death defeated by life the rocking chair in which Rosalind's mother sat kept creaking. Words came haltingly from between her white lips. The test of Ma Westcott's life had come. Always she had been defeated. Now she must triumph in the person of Rosalind, the daughter who had come out of her body. To her she must make clear the fate of all women. Young girls grew up dreaming hoping believing there was a conspiracy men made words they wrote books and sang songs about a thing called love young girls believed they married or entered into close relationships with men without marriage on the marriage night there was a brutal assault and after that the woman had to try to save herself as best she could she withdrew within herself further and further within herself ma westcott had stayed all her life hidden away within her own house in the kitchen of her own house as the years passed and after the children came her man had demanded less and less of her now this new trouble had come her daughter was to have the same experience to go through the experience that had spoiled life for her how proud she had been of Rosalind, going out into the world, making her own way. Her daughter dressed with a certain air, walked with a certain air. She was a proud, upstanding, triumphant thing. She did not need a man. God, Rosalind, don't do it, don't do it, she muttered over and over. How much she had wanted Rosalind to keep clear and clean. Once she also had been a young woman, proud, upstanding. Could anyone think she had ever wanted to become Ma Westcott, fat, heavy, and old? All through her married life she had stayed in her own house, in the kitchen of her own house, but in her own way she had watched, she had seen how things went with women her man had known how to make money he had always housed her comfortably he was a slow silent man but in his own way he was as good as any of the men of willow springs men worked for money they ate heavily and then at night they came home to the woman they had married 
Before she married, Ma Westcott had been a farmer's daughter. She had seen things among the beasts, how the male pursued the female. There was a certain hard insistence, cruelty. Life perpetuated itself that way. The time of her own marriage was a dim, terrible time. Why had she wanted to marry? She tried to tell Rosalind about it. I saw him on the main street of town here one Saturday evening when I had come to town with father, and two weeks after that I met him again at a dance party out in the country, she said. She spoke like one who has been running a long distance and who has some important, some immediate message to deliver. He wanted me to marry him and I did it. He wanted me to marry him and I did it. She could not get beyond the fact of her marriage. Did her daughter think she had no vital thing to say concerning the relationship of men and women? All through her married life she had stayed in her husband's house, working as a beast might work, washing dirty clothes, dirty dishes, cooking food. She had been thinking, all through the years she had been thinking. There was a dreadful lie in life. The whole fact of life was a lie. She had thought it all out. There was a world somewhere unlike the world in which she had lived. It was a heavenly place in which there was no marrying or giving in marriage, a sexless, quiet, windless place where mankind lived in a state of bliss. For some unknown reason, mankind had been thrown out of that place, had been thrown down upon the earth. It was a punishment for an unforgivable sin, the sin of sex. The sin had been in her as well as in the man she had married. She had wanted to marry. Why else did she do it? Men and women were condemned to commit the sin that destroyed them. Except for a few rare, sacred beings, no man or woman escaped. What thinking she had done when she had just married and after her man had taken what he wanted of her, he slept heavily, but she did not sleep. She crept out of bed and, going to a window, looked at the stars. The stars were quiet. With what a slow, stately tread the moon moved across the sky. The stars did not sin. They did not touch one another. Each star was a thing apart from all other stars, a sacred, inviolate thing. On the earth, under the stars, everything was corrupt. The trees, flowers, grasses, the beasts of the field, men and women, they were all corrupt. They lived for a moment and then fell into decay. She herself was falling into decay. Life was a lie. Life perpetuated itself by the lie called love. The truth was that life itself came out of sin, perpetuated itself only by sin. There is no such thing as love. The world is a lie. The man you are telling me about wants you for the purpose of sin, she said, and getting heavily up went into the house. Rosalind heard her moving about in the darkness. She came to the screen door and stood looking at her daughter lying tense and waiting on the porch. The passion of denial was so strong in her that she felt choked. To the daughter it seemed that her mother standing in the darkness behind her had become a great 
spider, striving to lead her down into some web of darkness. Men only hurt women, she said. They can't help wanting to hurt women. They are made that way. The thing they call love doesn't exist. It's a lie. Life is dirty. Letting a man touch her dirties a woman. Ma Westcott fairly screamed forth the words. They seemed torn from her, from some deep inner part of her being. Having said them, she moved off into the darkness, and Rosalind heard her going slowly toward the stairway that led to the bedroom above. She was weeping in the peculiar, half-choked way in which old, fat women weep. The heavy feet that had begun to mount the stair stopped, and there was silence. Ma Westcott had said nothing of what was in her mind. She had thought it all out, what she wanted to say to her daughter. Why would the words not come? The passion for denial within her was not satisfied. There is no love. Life is a lie. It leads to sin, to death, and decay, she called into the darkness. A strange, almost uncanny thing happened to Rosalind. The figure of her mother went out of her mind, and she was in fancy again a young girl and had gone with other young girls to visit a friend about to be married. With the other she stood in a room where white dresses lay on a bed. One of her companions, a thin, flat-breasted girl, fell on her knees beside the bed. A cry arose. Did it come from the girl or from the old, tired, defeated woman within the Westcott house? Don't do it. Oh, Rosalind, don't do it pleaded a voice broken with sobs. The Westcott house had become silent like the street outside and like the sky sprinkled with stars into which Rosalind gazed. The tenseness within her relaxed and she tried again to think. There was a thing that balanced, that swung backward and forward. Was it merely her heart beating? Her mind cleared. The song that had come from the lips of Walter Sayers was still singing within her. Life the conqueror over death, death the conqueror over life. She sat up and put her head into her hands. I came here to Willow Springs to put myself to a test. Is it the test of life and death? She asked herself. Her mother had gone up the stairway into the darkness of the bedroom above. The song singing within Rosalind went on. Life the conqueror over death, death the conqueror over life. Was the song a male thing, the call of the male to the female, a lie, as her mother had said? It did not sound like a lie. The song had come from the lips of the man Walter, and she had left him and had come to her mother. Then Melville Stoner, another male, had come to her. In him also was singing the song of life and death. When the song stopped singing within one, did death come? Was death but denial? The song was singing within herself. What a confusion. After her last outcry, Ma Westcott had gone weeping up the stairs into her own room and to bed. After a time, Rosalind followed. She threw herself onto her own bed without undressing. Both women lay waiting. Outside in the darkness before his house sat Melville Stoner, the male, the man who knew of all that had passed between mother and daughter. 
Rosalind thought of the bridge over the river near the factory in the city and of the gulls floating in the air high above the river. She wished herself there, standing on the bridge. It would be sweet now to throw my body down into the river, she thought. She imagined herself falling swiftly and the swifter fall of the birds down out of the sky. They were swooping down to pick up the life she was ready to drop, sweeping swiftly and beautifully down. That was what the song Walter had sung was about. Henry Westcott came home from his evening at Emanuel Wilson's store. He went heavily through the house to the back door and the pump. There was the slow, creaking sound of the pump working, and then he came into the house and put the pail of water on the box by the kitchen sink. A little of the water spilled. There was a soft little slap, like the child's bare feet striking the floor. Rosalind arose. The dead, cold weariness that had settled down upon her went away. Cold, dead hands had been gripping her. Now they were swept aside. Her bag was in a closet, but she had forgotten it. Quickly she took off her shoes, and holding them in her hands went out into the hall in her stockinged feet. Her father came heavily up the stairs past her as she stood, breathless, with her body pressed against the wall in the hallway. How quick and alert her mind had become! There was a train eastward bound toward Chicago that passed through Willow Springs at two in the morning. She would not wait for it. She would walk the eight miles to the next town to the east. That would get her out of town. It would give her something to do. I need to be moving now, she thought as she ran down the stairs and went silently out of the house. She walked on the grass beside the sidewalk to the gate before Melville Stoner's house and he came down to the gate to meet her. He laughed mockingly. I fancied I might have another chance to walk with you before the night was gone, he said, bowing. Rosalind did not know how much of the conversation between herself and her mother he had heard. It did not matter. He knew all Ma Westcott had said, all she could say, and all Rosalind could say, or understand. The thought was infinitely sweet to Rosalind. It was Melville Stoner who lifted the town of Willow Springs up out of the shadow of death. Words were unnecessary. With him she had established the thing beyond words, beyond passion, the fellowship in living, the fellowship in life. They walked in silence to the town's edge, and then Melville Stoner put out his hand. You'll come with me? she asked, but he shook his head and laughed. No, he said, I'll stay here. My time for going passed long ago. I'll stay here until I die. I'll stay here with my thoughts. He turned and walked away into the darkness beyond the round circle of light cast by the last street lamp on the street that now became a country road leading to the next town to the east. Rosalind stood to watch him go, and something in his long, loping gait again suggested to her mind the figure of a gigantic bird. He is like the gulls that float above the river in Chicago, she thought. His spirit floats above the town of Willow Springs. When the death in life comes to the people here, he swoops down with his mind, plucking out the beauty of them. 
She walked, at first slowly, along the road between cornfields. The night was a vast, quiet place into which she could walk in peace. A little breeze rustled the corn blades, but there were no dreadful, significant human sounds, the sounds made by those who lived physically but who in spirit were dead, had accepted death, believed only in death. The corn blades rubbed against each other and there was a low, sweet sound as though something was being born. Old, dead, physical life was being torn away, cast aside. Perhaps new life was coming into the land. Rosalind began to run. She had thrown off the town and her father and mother as a runner might throw off a heavy and unnecessary garment. She wished also to throw off the garments that stood between her body and nudity. She wanted to be naked, new-born. Two miles out of town a bridge crossed Willow Creek. It was now empty and dry, but in the darkness she imagined it filled with water, swift running water, water the color of chrysoprase. She had been running swiftly, and now she stopped and stood on the bridge, her breath coming in quick, little gasps. After a time she went on again, walking until she had regained her breath, and then running again. Her body tingled with life. She did not ask herself what she was going to do, how she was going to meet the problem she had come to Willow Springs, half hoping to have solved by a word from her mother. She ran. Before her eyes the dusty road kept coming up to her out of darkness. She ran forward, always forward, into a faint streak of light. The darkness unfolded before her. There was joy in the running, and with every step she took she achieved a new sense of escape. A delicious notion came into her mind. As she ran she thought the light under her feet became more distinct. It was, she thought, as though the darkness had grown afraid in her presence and sprang aside out of her path. There was a sensation of boldness. She had herself become something that within itself contained light. She was a creator of light. At her approach, darkness grew afraid and fled away into the distance. When that thought came, she found herself able to run without stopping to rest, and half wished she might run on forever, through the land, through towns and cities, driving darkness away with her presence. End of section 16, Out of Nowhere, Into Nothing.